This is Media Sales Mastery, the podcast for media sales professionals. In each episode, we bring you information, insights, and ideas from some of the industry's top thought leaders. Connect with us to help pick the topic and guide the show. This is Media Sales Mastery, the podcast for media sales professionals. I am your host, Jamie Wood. Hey, I just got finished recording a LinkedIn Live audio event. The topic was upping your internal business case game. So this was off the back of a post I did around really kind of the dynamic that occurs when you are a media sales professional, a sales manager, and you are trying to address an internal blockage, an internal issue. You know, you're trying to get the business to give you something, to take something away, to improve something, to fix something, to change something. And I was just really talking about how it's actually really challenging. You know, as as media sales professionals, we are actually master persuaders, but it seems like all of our powers are completely useless when we start to try that persuade, <laughs> to take that persuasiveness inside our business. So I wanted to kind of deep dive into this and talk about it. I think, you know, this is all my thoughts. Um, there is no real playbook for this kind of stuff. Um, there are some people who exist that are just excellent at this type of coaching. I, I would call out Richard Wentworth Ping from Wentworth People, who is a guest we have had on previous episodes. This is a fantastic area that he really specializes in as a coach. But what I wanted to do was just give some context as to why I think this is such a difficult thing for a lot of people internally, some of the approaches that I've found to be really successful. And if all else fails, some of the tough conversations that you need to be prepared to have in order to make sure that as a sales professional, you feel comfortable and confident and secure in your role. So without any further delay, I'm going to jump into this right now. I'm actually really enjoying doing these um, these random rants where I just kind of verbally diarrhea at the screen. Um, I'm mindful that I'm not doing as many interview styles in the podcast. So just give me a heads up. If you are an avid listener of the podcast and you think I'm doing too much of this and not enough kind of guest interview, let me know. I won't take it personally. I appreciate feedback. Um, But from a personal perspective, I just really enjoy um, getting the word out there and promoting the podcast and maybe flipping the flipping the format up from time to time, doing some different stuff. So that's what's inspired me to kind of change tact in 2023. Here we go. Media Sales Mastery. Okay, welcome to our LinkedIn Live audio event. First of all, the title of this episode and the title of this event is Upping Your Internal Business Case Game. This is specifically for people who work in sales roles in the media industry, sales leadership roles in the media industry, or anyone who works as part of a sales function and needs to make certain business cases, certain rationales, certain arguments, certain requests of the business in order to be successful in the function. It's an area that is very niche, but anyone who has worked in sales for a while probably will find this to be helpful, I would hope. I certainly know in my first five years of media sales and in my first five years of sales leadership in a media company, this has always been an area that has been incredibly difficult to master. So let's set this one up. Does this sound like you? First of all, let me let me just paint a picture for you. You are a frontline seller or a sales manager in a media organization and you don't have the resources to get to your number. Now, you might be dealing with major pushback from an internal department or a function who are supposed to be there to support sales. You might feel like you're at a major competitive disadvantage due to some sort of antiquated business rule or rules that are in place that restrict your ability to do your job. 
Um, you know, maybe you're being beholden to pricing restrictions. Maybe you've got certain processes you need to follow. Maybe you're in a situation where your competitors have 16 more people than your business has and a whole bunch of different tools and toys that help them be successful. All of those things are very much a reality of working in media sales. They're very much a reality of operating in a competitive environment. But here's the worst part of all of this. No matter what the issue is, nobody's taken it seriously when you raise it. You might be raising it with your sales director. You might be raising it with your national sales director. Maybe your CFO. Maybe you had a chance to have a quick chat to them in the hallway. Maybe your CEO came to town and did a town hall and spoke to everybody and you were brave enough to raise your hand and ask a question around why you don't have access to a particular thing. You constantly feel like you're reporting on this issue. You constantly feel like you're raising it. You're putting it in your whips. You're putting it in your Intel reports. All of your coworkers unanimously agree that this is an issue, yet you're still not cutting through. This is really, really common, right? I, I have done a little bit of coaching in my time, mostly people who reached out through my podcast who wanted to just jump on a Zoom. This is the majority of what people hit me up for is advice on how do I cut through the internal red tape and get access to what I need to do my job, right? I'm going to share a story because I'm by no means the expert here. I once ran a media sales team that were under-resourced, right? That is the fact. We didn't have enough people to actually do the job that was required of us. We didn't have enough people to fulfill the demand of the market. We didn't have enough people to get to our number. It was, it was quite simply an unachievable target based on the resourcing we had. And as a consequence of that, as a consequence of having, let's say, three, I'm going to say minimum two, but ideally three people less than we needed, we had a sales team that would come in and effectively survive the day. Okay, we had sales coordinators who were basically just running on adrenaline the whole time. And you know, these are the types of things that can really quickly kind of demonstrate when a team is under-resourced. Nobody in the team would take their lunch break. People would power through and either forget they hadn't had lunch or they would eat their lunch at their desk. People would consistently arrive early. People would consistently leave late. And this is not healthy, right? If you're the leader of a team and you're seeing these kind of things, these symptoms, these are actually massive red flags because you've got a team that are on the brink of burnout. This is not a sustainable way to run a team. It's not a sustainable way to keep your job as a sales director because you're going to continue to miss your targets. And I needed to kind of raise the alarm internally around this issue. So I would constantly raise this with my national sales director. I would give all those examples I just gave to everybody then. Here's the thing that was really, really difficult. His response was pretty much that everyone was doing what we were doing right? Where, you know, he would say things like, look, the, you know, the business is under a lot of cost pressure right now, Jamie, as you know, there's a lot of people who aren't having roles filled that they need filled as well. We're all working late. We're all having to get, you know, give a little bit more to the business at the moment. You know, what you need to do, Jamie, is you need to delegate better. You've got to prioritize. You've got to lean on these departments. You need to coach your people, blah, 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 blah. I'd retort with, you know, other markets have more resources, you know, but we've got a bigger team, you know, like the Perth team only have six people or the Perth team have six people and their budget's like half of ours and we've only got 10 people or we've got way less sales coordinator support than Melbourne does per rep, all these different things. I'd explain how other markets had more resources, how they had bigger teams, how they had less revenue. I explained how hard it was to gain access to the internal departments he was talking about, you know, um, you know, in, 
in theory, yeah, we should be able to delegate. But when you've got a salesperson that's coming in, they're panicking, they've got a short-term turnaround on a brief, adding another person into that process, either we're going to get pushback, we're going to you know, unnecessarily drag out the process, or actually, we're not even really getting work on the timeline to the quality we require from that department. It actually makes our job harder using those guys. So, these kind of things were all internal, you know, also giving the external context, like our nearest competitor had four to five additional headcount than we did to generate the same outcome. All of this stuff, none of it seemed to cut through, right? None of it actually landed. None of it felt like it was being taken seriously by the business. And I do have to really pause here for a moment. This national sales director was an exceptionally good operator. Okay, he was very, very skilled in his job. He had been very experienced. He was fantastic at understanding the rhythm or the resourcing or the process or the structures, all the things that you need to make a sales team function. So he wasn't incompetent, right? What I actually realized, and the problem is if I was to really sum it up, it was me. I failed to articulate a clear business case for the resources that I required in my market. What I was doing was I was listing off the symptoms of the problem right? Things like coordinators running on adrenaline, people staying late, working through lunch breaks. I was giving the symptoms of the problem. What I wasn't doing was actually showcasing the nature of the business problem or putting a sound business rationale up the line for the solution that we required. And I think we are guilty of this, right? If, you, if you're hearing a bit of this, I'm not saying you should throw yourself under the bus and take responsibility fully, but I think it's fair to say that a lot of salespeople are guilty of doing this. They use their external sales approach to try and persuade people internally in the business. Okay, I'm going to say that again. They use their external sales approach and they try to take that skill set and that approach to selling and persuading externally and they point it internally into their business and they try to use that as a way of persuading their internal stakeholders, particularly the senior stakeholders who have the ability to make these changes. And it's actually fair that they would do that, right? Because in sales, we are hardwired to do that, right? We are trained to do things like use emotive language when you are selling, paint an inspiring vision of the future, bring passion, bring enthusiasm, bring energy, right? Put some conviction behind what you're saying, transfer that that belief, show people that you are fully invested. Um, you know, even things like avoid getting too detailed heavy, right? Try to really kind of make sure that you're painting the big picture and that you're not getting bogged down in unnecessary detail. It's all really great stuff when you're in market. Makes perfect sense. Pretty much the exact opposite of how you have to approach articulating an internal business case though. Okay, if you literally did the opposite of those four or five things, that is pretty much how you should roll when you're making an internal business case. So what I'm going to do is I've got four things here. Um, all I've got is headings on a page, but these are the four things that you need to consider if you want to up your internal business case game. These are four things that you need to really give consideration to before you go and have a crucial conversation with your sales director, with your national sales director, with your CFO, with your CEO, with anyone in the business who you need to have a crucial conversation with around something that is really making it difficult for you to function in your sales role or your sales leadership role. So number one, no one's going to like this one, but this is absolutely sacrosanct. Take the emotion out of it, okay? Take the emotion out of the entire thing. Emotional arguments do not land in a business discussion, okay? Hyperbolic language 
is one of the single worst things that you can bring to a practical business discussion when you are trying to make a rationale, right? And I'll give you an example. My example before around the team working, you know, coming in early and leaving late. If I was to say something to my national sales director, like, you know, we're working 12-hour days here, mate. Okay, what I'm trying to demonstrate is that we are working really, really substantial hours outside of core business hours. But the way that information is going to be received by somebody in a national leadership role is not the way that I'm intending. I'm intending to show how severe the situation is. I'm sure on occasion there probably have been some times where people have worked 12-hour days, but somebody on the receipt of that information is going to take that very literally. They're going to look at that and go, okay, Jamie, so you're saying that your people get here at 8 a.m. in the morning and they leave at 8 o'clock every night. You've got 20 people coming in from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. five days a week. Is that what you're saying? Right? No. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. But straight away, I'm on the back foot and I've lost credibility. You know, and I hear this happen a lot. I know like certain salespeople are really guilty if they sell an advertising package to a direct client. They can think that it's really helpful to use these real extreme examples to try and make a case. You know, there's a lot riding on this campaign. You know, the client could literally close his doors if this campaign doesn't work for him. The intent behind that is is really pure. What you're trying to say is that this is a small client. This is a big investment in the context of, of their business. We really need to ensure that we do our very best to generate a return for this advertiser. Okay, but saying things like the client will close their doors if this doesn't work, it gets the reverse of what you actually want it to achieve. It doesn't get taken seriously. If anything, it actually undermines the argument you were trying to make. Okay, the next one is around showing frustration or animation. Okay, that's the other thing. Particularly if you think about approaching somebody senior in the business, on any given day, somebody who sits in a business leadership role in a big media company are multitasking across a number of issues. And what they typically kind of don't take well to is somebody who's coming at them with a heightened level of animation or a heightened level of frustration, right? Don't come to somebody at an 11 to try and give them context to make a case. You've got to keep it really cool, really calm. You can be stern, you can be direct, but you need to make sure that you take that visceral human emotion out of it and have a really mature, sensible conversation, right? And you've got to avoid things. So, you know, emotion can be really, really quickly misconstrued as jealousy or as another as another type of thing. So maybe I would say something in the past like, mate, you know, the Perth team have three coordinators to write a million dollars a month. I've got four coordinators to write $2 million a month. The case that I'm trying to make there is really quite practical. What I'm trying to show is that there is a disproportionate amount of resource being allocated between markets based on the revenue. But what that's going to be perceived as is jealousy. The Perf team have more than I do, and I'm trying to throw them under the bus. Okay, That's never our intent, and that doesn't help your cause if that's how it's getting received. You've got to keep your cool. You've got to keep yourself very much in a state where you are relaxed, you are calm, you are poised. And you've got to keep everything you say contained to the issue that you are trying to resolve and the resulting impact on the business if you don't get it resolved. Try to really kind of make sure that you think about this. The emotion is one of the single worst things that you can bring to a business discussion. Number two, and this is sort of a natural extension from the emotion one, pick your battles. Okay, pick your battles. Business issues are complex, Business issues aren't black and white, right? There are lots of examples of different mini issues that kind of flare up 
off the back of a bigger issue. And there's lots of legacy details as to how an issue's come to be. There's various reasons why something might be the way it is. Thinking about this um, just in my own sense, you know, what I see is typically you'll have somebody who's so frustrated by a particular issue in a business that it's festered, it's created other issues, and suddenly you've got this laundry list of about 20 things where you feel like you've been unjustly treated by the business or you've got things that that you feel you really need to table with the business. So in my case, you know, an example might be with the resourcing case. Um, you know, mate, I told you three months ago that we didn't have enough resourcing. Now you're giving me grief about missing my budget two months in a row. When we were on that call the other day, the CEO said that our market share is slipping. I've already put the submission up the line. You said we had a headcount freeze on, and then you've gone and put three roles into this department over here. They were new hires. It's all very valid stuff, right? It's the kind of thing that if you were on the receiving end of that, it would be infuriating. However, you have to bring it back to what are you trying to achieve from this conversation? Are you trying to win the argument or are you trying to get a solution? Okay. So often what I see is people get so frustrated by an issue that what they actually want to do is go in and win an argument versus getting a resolution to the core issue. You have to prioritize what the core issue is and what you require. And I, when I say the core issue, I mean, if you've got four things that you think like a gripes, you've got four things that you think are major issues, maybe go in and think of the one, maybe two issues that you genuinely want to tackle and get a solve for, okay? Prioritize the big things and make sure that you, to, you know, to some extent, you kind of let some stuff go, okay? Because if you get to a situation where, you come at a you know at a stakeholder like a senior stakeholder in the business if you're coming at them hot and you're throwing 15 different things at them they're not necessarily going to be able to help you solve your problem if anything what they're going to do is think that they need to placate you and calm you down and have a bit of a coaching discussion right so suddenly you're on the receiving end of you need to look at this more maturely you need to think about delegation you need to think about blah 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 okay you suddenly you're in a coaching discussion as opposed to a serious business conversation and what's being you know, what's the center of the conversation is your tone and demeanor and your attitude versus the actual technical solution that you need for a problem. Okay, so try to let go of the stuff that's not important. All right, I cannot stress this enough. Pick your battles. You can have a winch to people that you know you can be, you can confide in. But when it comes to dealing with a person who has the power to actually fix the problem, you've got to pick your battles and lead with the biggest, ugliest, maybe one, maybe two issues that you have. Number three, talk macro, but have the micro on hand if required. Okay, the more senior someone becomes in a media comp in a media company, the more complex their world gets. Therefore, the more they need you to simplify your communication to them. Okay, I get that we think that's counterintuitive. They're not children, they're not three-year-olds, but think about what might be happening in the day of a life of a chief sales officer or a national sales director or a head of commercial. Think about the things that they're potentially multitasking on in the here and now in terms of the longer term time horizons, right? There's a lot of complexity and a lot of detail in their world. You need to be able to really, really simply articulate the core of your problem in really effective business language, right? So I'll give you an example of what talking macro might be like. So if I was talking about my resourcing issue, um, you know, again, I could throw all those things at them like I was using before, or I could talk very macro. Hey, I just want to have a conversation with you. 
we're in a situation where we've been failing to hit our revenue targets. This is stemming from a, a resourcing issue. I'd love to just get you across specifically where that issue lies and what I think a solve for it is. Okay, that is going to cut through a lot more than anything around 12-hour days, working through lunch breaks, Perth getting more resources than you get, et cetera, et cetera, right? If you have that conversation in that form, what you're going to find is that you set yourself up for them to be able to, to really kind of lean in and try to unpack more information. This is where the micro information has to be really dialed in and has to be on hand because in many cases, they're going to ask you questions that you want to be very prepared to answer and to have facts to back them up. Okay, so here's an example of a micro question, a way that you might answer it incorrectly, and then a way that you could answer it. Okay, so let's say, um, you know, we say something to the effect of, you know, failing to hit our revenue targets. Um, okay, well, why do you think you're missing your revenue targets, right? You could say something like, the guys are just coming in reacting to the day. The quality of the work that they're putting out is, is like they're just panicking. We're just having to do everything we can. It's everything we can do to get the proposals out the door. The way that you could potentially flip that is to go, well, what we've seen is that the team have really lost their discretionary capacity. They're really just coming in and having to serve the reactive response-based response based part of their job. Um, as a result, you know they've got they don't have capacity to actually go out and generate new revenue. The quality of the work that they are putting out has had to drop, and you know as a result, our conversion rates have gone from seventy percent win rates down to fifty. Okay, that was a bit wordy, but you can see a really different um, a really different approach to the wording there. Right, the quality of the work has dropped because we don't have capacity to do it at a high standard. And one of the tangible proof points of that is I've tracked our conversion rates and our conversion rates have gone down. Okay, that's fact-based. That is making a business case and substantiating it with a data point that is irrefutable. Uh, maybe something around, um, you know, well, okay, well, how are the guys, how are the staff going? Is there anything we can do there um, to alleviate some of that work? Well, yeah, funny you should ask, actually. The staff are not having a good time. I reckon she's going to leave. I reckon he's getting completely over it. He's been really short on the floor. Um, you know, I don't think these coordinators uh, think that they're getting paid fairly for what for what hours we're expecting of them. Again, these are all valid things to say, but they're not going to get you the outcome you want, right? So if people, if people want to kind of think about this more from a scientific point of view, you need to think of a data point that's actually relevant to this situation that is a business data point. You know, well, how are the team going? Look, to be really frank with you, they're working hours that I'm not comfortable them working. It's not sustainable to do long-term. You know, for example, in the last three months, we've actually seen a 50% increase in unplanned sick leave. Okay, again, that's a fact, right? That is a data point that's pretty compelling. Our people are getting burnt out. Our people are feeling like they are stretched and our people, as a consequence, are, are getting sick, okay? And we've got the data there to, to show that our people are getting sick, right? Well, what about your competitors? Isn't it just a busy market at the moment? Um, well, you know, our competitors have way more resource than us. These guys have this whole specialist function that does all this stuff for us. You know, they've got four more reps than we do. The, like, you can... You can you can see how quickly you can start to get into these situations where you're just throwing these, what you think are valid arguments. But think about how you might answer that question from a competitive set in a way that is very fact-based. So if your competitors have more resources than you and they're covering the market better, 
think about a way you can make that case with data. We're in a situation where our competitors just have a much stronger market coverage than we do. You know, we we are trying to have our team hit at least eight meetings a week out in market at the moment. Based on the workload volume, they might struggle to get two or three. So I think on a normal week, we might only be doing 15, 20 touch points to market. You know, our nearest competitor over here, I think we've estimated based on their headcount, based on their capacity to be proactive, they're doing something like 60 touch points to market a week. So they're doing, you know, we're doing a third as many meetings a week as they are. All right, that's a compelling point, right? That that actually is information that I need to, you know, I need to be aware of as somebody in a media company. So these are the kinds of things that I think, I'm not saying they're easy to do, right? And I've been doing this a long time. So these are examples I can just pull from previous experience. But the biggest thing to remember here is talk macro, right? But have the macro micro on hand. Think of it like you've got to give that tight executive summary of what the issue is and what the solve needs to be. And then you've got the appendix there ready to rock and roll if anybody wants you to substantiate anything you have said. So so be prepared to answer the questions, right? And what I think can really build credibility when you're having these conversations, throwing a bunch of information at a stakeholder or a group of stakeholders where you feel like you need to squeeze every piece of information and put every piece of supporting data to them, right? That doesn't necessarily work as well as simply articulating the issue, simply articulating the solution, and then being prepared with an airtight response to their questions, okay? It's been my experience that, you know, the best way to have these conversations is often to put a bit of a plan together, send it to these people in advance, and then schedule a time to actually catch up and discuss getting a resolution to the issue, right? And what you'll find is that if you get a question such as, well, you know, what's happening? You say the work's dropping. What are you talking about? Well, yeah, per the appendix, you'll see that our conversion rate of business has dropped by about 20%. Oh, okay. Uh, what do you mean by, you know, we're not competitive in market at a market coverage level? Well, you know, per the appendix, um, based on the competitors resourcing versus ours, our market contacts are about 20% of, of our nearest competitor. You say per the appendix twice, it's very rare that you're going to get a third or fourth question because what they're actually wanting to test is that you've done your homework. Okay. And worst case, <laughs> I hate to say it, people don't really get a per the appendix more than twice because they don't want to show that they haven't read your document. So this one, talk macro, but be prepared with the micro. Okay, and on the last one here, don't sell the upside, forecast the downside. Okay, I'll say that again. Don't sell the upside, forecast the downside. Now, here's the thing we've got to remember if we work in a sales function of any type. We are used to selling the upside, okay? hey, if you give me more headcount, if you give me two more headcount, I'll go get you $1.6 million this year, right? Who doesn't want $1.6 million? You know, give me a hundred grand over here, I'll give you a million over here, right? Makes perfect sense. I'm giving you 10 times return. Sadly, these equations are are not necessarily met the way that you might think they need to be, okay? And I'll tell you why. As a media sales professional, as a sales leader, you are predominantly focused on revenue. That is what you are accountable for. That is kind of sacrosanct. If you're not bringing in the revenue, you're not doing your job. So you are hyper attuned to revenue. You think in terms of revenue growth. You think in terms of upside. You feel that your job is to grow revenues for the company. 
What's happening when you are taking that approach internally, though, is you are talking to people that aren't just focused on revenue. You are talking to people that are focused on cost. You are talking to people that are focused on operational efficiency. You're talking to people who have a world of OPEX, a world of CAPEX, a world of EBITDA, a number of different stakeholders that are pressing them for different things. They're often thinking in terms of the profitability of the business. They're often thinking in terms of reducing cost as opposed to maximizing revenue. So going and hitting them with a revenue story might not necessarily be the way that you get your business plan over the line. Right, And I know this sounds crazy, but think of it from the perspective of someone who is a CFO. If you're a CFO and you're $800,000 over your annual budget for headcount, you're, you're not interested in any amount of money or any amount of upside that's going to come as a consequence of you putting another hundred dollars to $200,000 of cost into the business. Okay, that's just the way the world works. It's not perfect, but these are these are the operating structures and these are the principles that most media companies have to abide by. So, forecasting the downside is actually the way you might want to approach these conversations. And if you think about it, most people who work in business leadership roles, particularly in the C-suite, they live in a world of risk versus return, capital deployment versus return on investment cost cutting versus the impact of that cost cutting. There is always a healthy tension between cost and revenue. And their job is to really straddle that line and make sure that they're making strategic decisions across both of those pressure points of the business. So I'm not saying that you can't make the business case, but you have to flip the way you think about making the business case. So let's think about this Uh, from the point of view of how do we reshape this argument. So with my case, um, I've got a team that's under-resourced. I need more headcount. I need two more reps into the team and maybe one more coordinator. What I might think about is how do I make this case in a way that actually speaks to a pressure point of the business I'm operating in? So, you know, earlier on, our team don't have capacity to be proactive in market. Our team, our reps are basically desk-bound. They're basically... You know, they're, they're responding to inbound inquiry. They're doing their best to just get the proposals out the door. Okay, think about how we could shape that into an argument that speaks to a pressure point of the business. My concern here with this is that we don't have discretionary effort to go and build pipeline. That means that we're heavily exposed to market fluctuations. My concern here is that we've seen market share go backwards. But above all else, I know how important it is that we sell this product, Mr. CFO, Mrs. CEO, Mr. Mrs. National Sales Director, Chief Sales Officer, whoever I'm talking to. I know because I've heard it from you for the past six months that this digital proposition is a key priority of the sales team to sell. My team currently do not have capacity to take this product out to market or to generate revenue against it. Okay, now you've got my attention, okay? Because you're right. This is important to the business. And if you're telling me that we don't have the the resourcing to actually support that initiative, you've got my attention. Think about it from the point of view, again, now of like a cost control perspective. So if a CFO is sitting in the room and you're making a case for $100,000 for a CFO who is, and I'm not saying that CFOs are this one dimensional, but it's been my experience that CFOs are very, very hyper-focused on keeping cost under control. So Think about an argument that might actually speak to what is important to a CFO, cost. You're making a case for more money from a CFO who wants to save money. The argument 
that I would make in this case around more headcount might be something like this. You know, we've got some, we've obviously got some issues around resourcing. Now, as a consequence of not having enough people on ground to fulfill the demand of the market, what I'm seeing, which is a worrying trend, is that people aren't taking their annual leave. Okay, and the reason they're not taking their annual leave is because they either feel some sort of sense of duty to their fellow teammates. They don't want to leave them in the lurch because they're seeing the workload already when the team are at full tilt. But also, I think the times where people have taken their leave, what they've come back to is, is the work hasn't been able to get fulfilled. The work is just there waiting for them. So in essence, they're actually increasing their workload. And a lot of the time, I hate to say, they're actually getting called on their leave. They're getting pulled in. Okay, a bit emotional what I'm saying there, but here's how you make it a cost discussion. So we're in a situation now where I'm starting to see our untaken leave accumulate, right? It's getting to a level where the staff aren't taking their annual leave. We're going to have a big issue in six months time if we've got a massive bank of untaken leave and we've got a workforce that are pushing back on taking it. That speaks to a CFO because untaken leave is a liability on their their balance sheet, okay? That's a problem that they would, would very much like to avoid. And if you are proving through data, and through a common sense, well-articulated business case, that that is an issue that is going to occur if you don't have a solve to the resourcing issue, that is something that is only going to get worse, okay? Uh, what about something a little bit fluffier? And I don't, when I say fluffier, I mean maybe the cost argument and the revenue argument um, and, the, and the pressure point of the business argument aren't landing, and you need something that's a little bit more sort of left of center, but you can hold these leaders accountable for. A lot of leaders are, are responsible for setting a vision for the business and they're very responsible for coming up with, in consultation with the, with the members of the business, the corporate values. Sometimes, not always, sometimes these values can actually be a fantastic leverage point to have a conversation because values are often created to, to provide a counterpoint to just the pure commercial performance of the business. They are kind of the governing rules for how the business needs to roll, how it, what its ethos is, how it needs to kind of make decisions in those tough times when faced with tough decisions. So something along the lines of a value-based argument is, you know, we're, we're a business that prides ourselves on being an employer of choice. Part of our strategy for being successful in the marketplace is attracting and retaining the best talent in the market. And we're in a situation now where I just think this is incongruent with our values. We have a duty of care to our people we have a responsibility to populate our workforce appropriately. And at the moment, my concern is we are going to lose high performers due to burnout and we're going to fail to attract quality people to come in and replace those roles. This is going to be very disruptive to our business. And, you know, I know the guiding principles of our business are about talent. We really have to put our people first and walk the talk here. What can be done? Okay, that's about as emotional as an argument you can make. But again, it's aligned to the business. It is a business conversation in the context of what that business has stated its values are. And I think this is a really important one. This is where you can maybe come across as being a little bit uh, argumentative. You can come across a bit difficult, but sometimes this is absolutely the type of thing that you can use, particularly if you've got a leadership team that really do fully invest in the values and do hold themselves accountable to the values of the business. Uh, what's another one we should think about? Okay, let's think about all else failing. Let's say you've made your, your business case, you've really had a good red hot crack, you know, you haven't sold the upside, you've forecasted the downside, you've spoken about a pressure point on the business, you've tried to make the argument on cost, you've made the values-based discussion, and you get a no. Look, Jamie, everything you're saying is valid, but the reality is we just don't have the money. 
if we did have the money, we would have to put it in these other areas that with respect are more of a priority. Um, I take your point on the values, but all we can do is make sure that we nurture our people, make sure that we prioritize, make sure we pull in resources. You need to kind of guide your people through these tough times. So you get a brick wall at everything you've tried to make. This is the trigger for you, and I use this very delicately, okay? Do not take this information and, and weaponize it. This is the time where you need to have a frank discussion with the business around what you are willing and unwilling to be held accountable to, okay? I'm not being held accountable to these revenue targets if I'm not provided the tools and support that I'm telling you I need. You're telling me the what, which is the $20 million a year that I need to go get. I'm telling you the how. I get that, which is with these resources, this tool, this amount of tools and this amount of support. If you are unable to provide that to me, and if you're in a situation where we can't get a resolution to this problem, then I'm sorry, but I need to communicate with you right now that this is just simply not achievable. Okay, Here's what I think we do need to do, though. I'm going to go back and I'm going to revise a realistic forecast for the rest of the year based on the resource set that we have. I'm going to put a process in place whereby I'm going to call key customers when they give us a a large brief and I'm going to let them know that we're in a situation where we need an extra 72 hours to respond to that brief at the level required because we don't have the resourcing to be able to turn it around on the timeline to a quality we're comfortable with. I'm happy to do that. But what my primary focus on right now is making sure that I don't burn out or corrode my team, that my team can actually work reasonable hours based on the remuneration they're paid, understanding there needs to be flex there at time to time. And I need you to be comfortable that if this is the situation, then this is what I can commit to giving because this is my livelihood too. Okay. That's kind of your last resort. But this is important, right? This is the kind of stuff we need to talk about sometimes. I've been a sales director for nearly a decade. I've done it three times, potentially potentially more than that if you consider working in sales manager roles in the past as well. There's a reason a lot of sales managers don't stay in the job for long. It's because they fail to understand this really interesting dynamic, which is you are an employee of the business, but you at times have to have an adversarial relationship with the business. Your role is not just to do everything the business tells you. Your role is to hold the business to account in order to generate the revenue that they require you to generate. So these kind of conversations are not going to get you labeled as being difficult if you have them in a mature, respectful way. Okay, These conversations actually build credibility, they build your profile as a leader, and they actually show that you've got a level of commercial nous, but you are also practical and pragmatic as well. Here's the thing that I would probably end with. If you are in a situation where you are a frontline seller or a sales manager, and you are saying, I've got something that I need the business to give me, I've got something the business needs to improve, I've got something the business needs to remove, I've got something the business needs to fix, I've got something the business needs to do. Okay, think about these four things before you go and have that conversation with the person you need to have the conversation with. Don't have it with 50 people in the business that don't have the ability to make any sort of an impact or change. Go to the person respectfully following an appropriate corporate hierarchy, but get in front of the person who actually has the power and the authority and the influence to make the change. But before you have that conversation, consider these four things. One, Take the emotion the hell out of it. Have a sensible, relaxed, stern and direct, but appropriate business conversation. 
Keep your cool. Okay, number two, pick your battles. Think about the one, max two things that are absolutely critical and that you really need to get a solve for. Let the other stuff go, okay? Get this win, build the political capital, and then start to move down the priority order, okay? So much of this is about just picking the battles and identifying the one core central issue you need to get fixed. Number three, when you are looking to get that issue fixed and you're talking to that person, talk macro, talk big, talk in terms of the actual the actual biggest uh, biggest rock you need to talk about, but have the micro information on hand if you are probed for it. Don't throw 50 things, throw them a football, and if they ask for more questions, throw them throw them something back one at a time. The more senior someone becomes in the business, the more complex their world gets. So talk macro, but have the micro on hand if you require. And last but not least, again, this goes against our nature as sales professionals, but don't sell the upside to somebody internally in the business. Forecast the downside, forecast the risk, show them what could potentially happen as a consequence of inaction, and make sure that you do it in the in the context of what is important to them in their role and capacity. If there's a pressure point of the business you know that they have, align it to that. If they are primarily focused on cost versus revenue, think about a way to shape your argument to show that cost impact. If you're in a situation where a leader is really trying to embody and instill values, use that as your leverage point. And if all else fails, don't be afraid to go back and redefine what success needs to look like under the new context where you don't get those solutions. Okay, I've told you everything that I I think we need to fix this. You're telling me that you can't provide those solutions. In the absence of any sort of a solution to this issue, here's what I believe is feasible and achievable to commit to moving forward. Okay, because this is my livelihood and I'm not being held accountable to something where I'm being set up to fail. Now, that's a very extreme example right? It's obviously very visceral when you start talking about livelihood and accountability and job security, but there are definitely those types of things that you do need to have as your ultimate plan B if you can't get the solution to the rest. Please let me know if this was helpful, guys, right? Again, this one was just me kind of doing a bit of a freestyle. I've got some notes in front of me, but this is me drawing on my experience over many, many years of having these types of conversations all the time. Um, If you think I hit the mark, let me know. If you think I really failed to mention anything or didn't give consideration to things or if there's stuff you want me to unpack, hit me up in my LinkedIn DM. Let me know if you want me to do a future uh, topic on this. Uh, Otherwise, I really wish you the very best. And, uh, you know, remember, there's not too many issues. I think there's no issues, to be honest, that can't be fixed with really good communication. So, focus on good communication, you probably find that most problems can get fixed relatively easily from there. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.